0: This is an Area Code podcast.
1: Welcome to Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm your host, Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. Today we're gonna to be talking about the artist known as Linda Parker, the little sunbonnet girl. Hey, 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 hey are to
2: bring you life to cheer. Right
1: Shut your eyes and imagine you can see a little old gray log cabin setting back a ways from the bend of a lazy, winding river. And a long, cool front porch running the full length of it, with morning glories and honeysuckle climbing around it. And up on the porch sets a little old girl in a gingham dress with a sunbonnet slung over her shoulder, sitting there strumming away on a $2 guitar and singing a million-dollar song. Got that picture? Well hold it and listen to this.
0: He sought not to deceive me. False friends have changed his heart I'll be all smiles tonight long I'll be all smiles tonight. My heart
1: may break
0: tomorrow. I'll be. Your miles
1: this is how Linda Parker was introduced to the world. In one sense to say the world is an exaggeration. Linda never became world-famous and is not likely to. More accurately, she was introduced to those in person at the 8th Street Theater in Chicago and those listening to the National Barn Dancer out the Midwest this evening in February 1932. In another sense, she was introduced to the world, like a newborn is introduced to the world, or where new technology is introduced to the world. This person, this configuration of molecules and the language to describe such a thing did not exist before this night. Now it does, now she does, and country music performance would never be the same. The opening scene was set by John Lair, musical director of the National Barn Dance starting in 1930. I didn't read it the way he did. I kept the G's at the end of the words. I didn't facsimilate a southern accent. John Lair would have directed me otherwise. He wanted the program to have a homey, Southern folksiness, and he wanted to present a pristine Southern charm and comfort to his Midwestern audience. Here's how WLS's annual publication, Family Album, describes Linda Parker in 1933. When Linda Parker was a little girl around the old home in Covington, Kentucky, she learned many of the old ballads of the hills. Probably when her mother put a little sunbonnet on her head and sent her out to pull weeds in the garden, she little dreamed that someday this little girl would be captioned as the sunbonnet girl, singing those same old songs from millions of people. You have doubtless detected in her singing that occasional plaintive note, so typical of the mountain music. She sings just as her mother and grandmother sang, artlessly but from the heart. lies. All lies. Probably, at least if we're trying to unify the identities of Linda Parker, the stage persona, and the woman who played the part of Linda Parker, Genevieve Elizabeth Munich. Genevieve, more frequently called Jean, was not born in Covington, Kentucky, just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati, but Covington, Indiana, in 1912, in the vicinity of Lafayette, Indiana, home to Purdue University. She did not learn the old ballads of the hills from her mother and grandmother, but mostly from John Lair when he hired her to perform on the National Barn Dance. The sunbonnet wasn't a remnant from her childhood wardrobe, but a stage prop. John Lair, again, is the co-architect. Her singing, however, can accurately be described as plaintive, from the heart, I wouldn't say artless, but maybe unpretentious, Though, ironically, there is a strong case to be made that even her unpretentious voice is, in fact, a crafted pretense. Jean's parents, Eddie Munich and Hazel Vives, were unmarried at the time of her birth, marrying seven weeks later. Her dad was 21 and her mom was 17. They were a working-class couple that moved to Hammond, Indiana in 1914 when Jean was two. This is where she grew up. As a child, Jean was known as Nenny. She loved dolls but was frightened by trains and would shriek and hide when trains rolled through town sounding their horns. Her doll Daphne made her feel safe. She attended Wallace School and then Hammond High School. She's described as a bright and ambitious child who entered high school at the age of 12, playing clarinet in the school band. The phrase juvenile delinquent floats around articles and chapters on Gene Munich. This isn't a useful phrase to us, but we do know that she was suspended from school on May 31st, 1927. Which seems to me like an odd date to be suspended from school, since what I can see about a typical school term in the 1920s means that this would be at the very end of the academic year or even into the summer. I don't have much more information than this about her suspension, but one source traces her movements to Hammond Tech on November 14th that same year. She would have been 15, and it looks as though Hammond Tech was the lot of the incorrigible Hammond High students. But since Jean reportedly started high school at the age of 12, entering Hammond Tech at the age of 15 doesn't seem so odd to me. Jean doesn't last long here either, though, quitting school on January nineteenth, 1928, the day after her 16th birthday. There are many reasons a person might quit school at the age of 16. One reason put forth for Jean is that she was so consumed with music that she didn't bother attending. One of Jean's first musical influences was Ruth Edding, also someone who quit school to follow her passion for music.
0: Tell me now, I've got to know, whether you want me To stay or go Love me or leave me Let me be lonely You won't believe me And I love you only I'd rather be lonely Than happy with somebody
2: else
0: You might find the night time, the right time for kissing, but night time is my time for just reminiscing, regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else.
1: The next we hear from Jean, she's singing on the radio at age seventeen for a Sunday afternoon variety show on WWAE in the Hammond Studios of the Chicago station. Here she was known as Jean Munich, the red-headed rascal. Her hair has also been described as Titian, a color that I had to look up. Think Anne of Green Gables, somewhere between carrots and a real handsome auburn. Gilbert Blythe had no right to call me carrots. On the radio station, she primarily sang blues among a variety of styles present in the cast. One of her castmates was someone named Al Lindbergh, for example who called himself the Baby Elephant with the Traveling Cigar Box. He'd sing his own ukulele compositions. The show picked up in popularity, and the station managers moved it from a 1.30 time slot to a 7.30 time slot, garnering Jean a bigger audience. She's said to have been the star of the show. A news article at the time noted her unusual blues voice, and that several Chicago critics have lauded her interpretations of, quote, low-down music. Another news article reported that Miss Jean Munich was singing the blues today because the meanest man in the whole world stole her pet bulldog Skippy. I don't really get that, but I'm sure there's a whole context we're missing. In the winter of 1930, she sang at the Beth L. Solarium in Chicago, which had been decorated like a nightclub, where she accompanied herself on ukulele. She found gigs at other radio stations, changing her name from the Red-Headed Rascal to the Red-Headed Bluebird, and then was hired on a daytime show on WLS, the home of the National Barn Dance. For this daytime show, Jean dropped her blues singing and picked up a repertoire of vintage songs and the nickname The Old Fashioned Girl. By April 1932, she had fully joined WLS, dropping her name Jean Munich altogether. This is a believable backstory to me. A young person, passionate about music, isn't able to make school work for her, so she drops out, tries on a few personalities, picks up gigs until, through hard work, ambition, and talent, lands at an established radio station. This backstory, however, is wiped away when she joins the WLS cast, largely at the direction of John Lair. In the last episode on Grace Wilson, we heard about the beginnings of WLS and the National Barn Dance. The early station managers found that recreating the nostalgia of a Saturday night barn dance, filled with tunes that nodded to an idyllic, moral, traditional past, was a hit with, presumably, the rural farmers and white southern migrants to the Midwest. The programming was centered around the home, the farm, and suggested that conservatism and traditionalism would stem the tide of the ills of urbanism in America. John Lair, born in Renfro Valley, Kentucky, settled in the Chicago area after he served in World War I. He started out working as an insurance salesman who played music on the side. He got a gig playing on WLS in the late 20s and began to manage a string band made up of Carl Davis on guitar and Hartford Taylor on mandolin. The pair also known as Carl and Hardy. Lair filled out this roster and they became known as the Cumberland Ridge Runners. Lair crafted a hillbilly image for the group, putting them in checkered shirts, boots, and straw or cowboy hats, and the group became regulars on the barn dance in
2: 1930. (music)
1: I'm not in your town to stay,
0: said a lady old and gray, to the warden of a penitentiary. I'm not in your town to stay, and I'll soon be on my way. I'm just here to get my baby out of jail, yes warden. I'm just here to get my baby
1: out of jail. Lair also found a spot in the group for Red Foley, who would become a country music superstar.
0: Sing me a hillbilly ballet. Sing me a heart from home. Sing of the mountains and valleys and the pine trees where I used to roam. Sing of two lovers who parted, put a tear in your voice, don't you see? Sing me a
1: hillbilly ballad, of a dear one who's waiting for me. Lots of Red Foley in future episodes. John Lair took Burridge D. Butler's Midwestern conservatism and actively infused a Southern flavor. Maybe not truly Southern, as if we can even generalize what Midwestern and Southern mean at any time in history, but as he became musical director of the Barn Dance, he actively recruited and featured quote-unquote authentic Southerners, like Lulu Bell, who we'll hear in the next episode, and for those artists who are not from the South, he gave them a fictional Southern backstory. You may remember in the last episode that I said Grace Wilson took more of a supporting role as John Lair moved in. This may be the reason why. Grace, without any authentic Southern bona fides, could not suddenly become Southern in the mind of the audience. She would not fit in the aesthetic that John Lair was trying to create. As music director, John Lair positioned himself as a kind of expert on traditional folk music, accumulating a large collection of sheet music. He would often refer to the origins of songs barn dance artists would sing, and he even had a column in the fan magazine, Standby, where he would share his expert knowledge. Whether he was truly an expert, or if it was all part of the show, I don't know. John Lair's rise corresponds with Bradley Kincaid's leaving the barn dance. Until this point, Kincaid was considered the authentic mountain deer of the show, for what it's worth. In Scarlet Town, where I was born,
0: there was a fair maid dwelling, made every use cry
1: well away. Her name was
0: Barbary
1: Allen. The barn dance, undergoing changes in leadership in 1930, leans into southern and western tinged music, while still catering to the midwestern farmer and southern migrant. Gene Autry is hired in 1930 and became a huge success.
2: When I had plenty of money,
1: the girls
2: all gathered round me. But now I have no money, they've all gone back
1: on me. In 1931, the show moved from its radio studios to the 8th Street Theater to accommodate an audience. Apparently, people would just show up to the radio station to try to crowd into the small studio to watch their favorite performers sing into a microphone. Making a stage show out of it and catering to a live audience, as well as a radio audience, seemed like a smart step, and it paid off. The live shows would sell out every night, with many turned away at the door. In 1932, the barn dance is picked up for national airplay through NBC. Now, one hour of the Saturday Night Barn Dance could be heard coast to coast. Things were really happening. This is where Gene Munich enters the story, and there are really three versions of what happened next. There's the version that continues the storyline of Gene Munich, as I've detailed above. There's a story told to WLS listeners about the fictitious character Linda Parker, and there's the conflation of the two stories, where Linda Parker's fictional backstory overtakes Jean Munich's backstory to such a degree that the facts blur and the truth of Jean Munich becomes difficult to parse. There's a version we can trace from what I've already shared about her life. A talented, ambitious young woman who didn't jive with school, working her way up from radio station to radio station until she finds herself at a nationwide radio show on the Up and Up. How did Jean get connected to WLS in the first place? Some theories put forth are that she connected with some WLS folks at a regional fair, made the appropriate connections, and got the gig. Or she comes into the WLS studios to advertise her nightclub act and is discovered here by John Lair, discovered in quotes, or John Lair discovers her in a nightclub, Or John Lair hears her sing on another radio station and hires her away for the barn dance. More on this later, but however she got the job in the National Barn Dance in 32, while she's there, she takes on a new persona, the Sunbonnet girl, Linda Parker from the hills of Kentucky, and a new repertoire, old world and southern ballads and sentimental songs passed down from grandmother to mother to her, and a new persona demure, sentimental mother, dressed in calico and a sunbonnet, here to soothe the troubled, restless world dealing with the Great Depression and changing times. All of this to fit the show's aesthetic and under the advisement of a manager, like many hundreds of other show business tales. In 1932, Gene becomes the vocalist for the Cumberland Ridge Runners, signing a three-year contract to be their front person agreeing to perform with them on the radio and play any touring gigs with the band. She falls in love with Arthur Jaynes, the baritone of another national barn dance band, the Maple City Four. and they marry within months of meeting in June of 1932 in Valparaiso, Indiana. They keep their marriage a secret from the fans, apparently in an attempt to maintain the radio persona of the Linda Parker character, somehow innocent and virginal while also wizened and motherly, maybe more the soul of a mother and the spirit of a youth. Anyway, her character needed to be unmarried for the effect to work, but the public knows by 1935. All I really know about Jean and Art's marriage is they enjoy mushroom foraging together. In this version, Jean is the primary agent of her career. This is the version of the story I think is most likely and the one I choose to believe. The second version of the story is the one that was sold to WLS listeners. Linda Parker, born in Covington, Kentucky, grew up happy in the hills, learning ballads from her mother and grandmother and actively collecting new ballads, She is unmarried. She dresses in calico and gingham, perhaps a more palatable fabric to the Chicago audience than the homespun fabric that would be truly authentic to her backstory. She wears a sunbonnet. She's known as the little sunbonnet girl. She holds a dulcimer, but probably does not actually play. In a WLS publication called Behind the Scenes in 1932, WLS introduces Linda Parker this way. Have you been hearing Lindy Parker singing old mountain songs with the Cumberland Ridge Runners? If so, you cannot soon forget the wistful tone of her voice as she sings of the loves and sorrows and hopes of the mountain folk. Linda was born in Covington, Kentucky, so she sings of places and scenes that are familiar to her. She's a slender, quiet girl of nineteen, serious-faced, often getting a sort of faraway look in her eyes, as if she were daydreaming of that beloved mountain country which she sings about here are some ways she's described by wls in a few issues of standby in 1935 in brief linda came to the big city from the cumberland mountains has been singing all her life plays the accordion banjo piano clarinet and dulcimer birthday january 18 height 5 foot 2 has mischievous blue eyes titian hair is usually smiling rehearses most of her spare time, is the wife of Art Jane's baritone of the Maple City Four. In February of that year, it says, Linda Parker practiced voice as a hello girl for the telephone company in Hammond, Indiana. Later saying, Linda Parker was cashier out at Swift's, started radio there on the old Swift Hour program. And in May of 35, it says, an interesting young lady is Linda Parker, a talented musician as well as vocalist, and a happy housewife as well, for she tends to the away-from-the-microphone home of one Arthur Janes, baritone of the Maple City Four. Linda never plays her own accompaniments, but can perform most creditably on the piano, guitar, banjo, clarinet, and dulcimer, which, incidentally, is one of the first instruments ever used in North America. Linda's home is in the Cumberland Mountains, where she learned many of the old melodies of the mountain country. Linda is 5 feet 2 inches tall, has mischievous blue eyes, wavy, Titian colored hair, and a smile that is the envy of all who know her. You'll hear a lot about Linda Parker in the coming years. One of Linda Parker's biggest, most requested songs was I'll Be All Smiles Tonight. Here's a 1933 recording with the Cumberland Ridge Runners.
0: I'll deck my brow with. Pray tomorrow, I'll be
2: all
1: Fans adored Linda Parker. Here's what one fan had to say. There's something poignantly appealing and sweet about Linda's songs. something that takes us away from the cares of mundane strife and the daily chores of the big city, something that sweeps the smoke and the heat or intense cold away the worries and the cares of the day, where Linda begins to sing her songs in her sweet, inimitable way. Linda Parker mirrors fresh breezes, mountain peaks, tall timber, rushing streams. She brings this refreshing and soothing essence into her tiny living room. We always listen to her with nostalgia in our hearts. Mrs. James F. Victorin, July 28, 1935. In 1932, the year that Linda Parker started at the National Barn Dance, a magazine called Radio Guide ran a poll to see who fans considered the it girl of the radio. She found herself competing with her childhood idol, Ruth Edding. Far less established than Edding, who came in second in the overall poll. Linda Parker, the only WLS artist in the poll finished ninth. Not bad. Of course, every fan has an opinion. One listener wrote to Standby to say that she preferred Grace Wilson to Linda Parker, describing Linda Parker's singing as, quote, an agony. Linda Parker only records two records. We heard I'll Be All Smiles Tonight from 1933. The B side of that was a John Lair composition, Take Me Back to Renfro Valley. <laughs>
2: I
0: was born in Renfro Valley,
2: but
0: I drifted far away. In Renfro, Valley, since the days of long
1: ago. Renfro Valley is going to be important later. It is John Lair's hometown, and he starts his own barn dance radio show there in the late 30s. It's a whole thing and we'll talk about it more in future episodes. But the important thing here is that the seed of the idea of Renfro Valley as an object of nostalgia begins with Linda Parker's popularizing this John Lair song. It's possible that she also wrote a song that was copyrighted but never published called my cabin among the pines. Some suggest that Linda Parker was perfect for the radio and that her voice was well suited for the temperamental microphones. A nasal or boisterous singer would cause pops and distortion. Crooners could use the sensitive, intimate technology to their advantage. Think Bing Crosby. Learn
2: to
0: croon. you'll eliminate each rival soon. If you're heading for a sunny honeymoon, learn.
1: On the radio, Linda Parker and the Cumberland Ridge Runners' most popular songs were were Bury Me Beneath the Willow Take Me Back to Renfro Valley Down by the River Wait for the Wagon Mary of the Wild Moor Single Girl Down in my old cabin home The Bell of the Mohawk Vale Don't Leave the Farm Gentle Nettie Moore Can You, Sweetheart, Keep a Secret Mother's Old Red Shawl Lost on the Lady Elgin and my mother's old sunbonnet.
2: You going to sing a song for us, Lulu Bell? Yep. <laughs> what is this? One of these razzmatazz new
0: ones or an old-fashioned oh, no. tune? Oh a very old-fashioned tune that I think that folks will like called my mother's old sunbonnet. <laughs> Door, It's the one my sainted mother used to wear Till one day she hung it up and never took it down again And since that day we've left it hanging there
1: the titles alone ooze nostalgia and traditionalism. In 1934, she records two more sides with the Cumberland Ridge Runners, Lonesome Valley Sally. I'm
2: dreaming tonight
0: of the valley And I'm writing this letter to you Keep dreaming of me, sweetheart Mountain Home.
1: Let's talk for a second about Linda Parker's placement on the Cumberland Ridge Runners, and an aspect of female performers on the barn dance, and in country music in general at this time, that still baffles me a little bit. The need for female performers to be attached to a family or a man to maintain a sense of virtue. We can see this in the artists we learned about in season one, perhaps with the exception of Samantha Bumgarner, although she was kind of attached to Bascom Lamar Lunsford, and Annie Kerr, although Annie Kerr came from a more matriarchal society. Roba Stanley and Moonshine Kate and Billy Maxwell all had their fiddling fathers. The Carter family, Lydia Mendoza, and Cleoma Breaux all performed with family. Lil Hardin in The World of Jazz is a bit of a different story, though she is forever linked with Louis Armstrong. Jean Munich, in order to present a soothing virtue, could not be a worldly-wise, independent woman. She was placed with the Cumberland Ridge Runners as a way to surround her with trustworthy chaperones, a kind of a showbiz family, of which Linda Parker was both matriarchal figure and protected little sister. At the same time, Linda Parker's sex appeal would be used to help sell the Cumberland Ridge Runners. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and we'll see this theme develop with other acts like Lulu Bell, the Overstake Sisters, and Patsy Montana in upcoming episodes. Others suggest that the barn dance needed to maintain the idea of the male authority figure particularly important during the Great Depression where male unemployment exceeded female unemployment since the heavy labor jobs were the hardest hit. By presenting a vision of the home and world where men maintained authority, the crumbling egos of the unemployed men at home would receive a little mending and hope in a world being righted again. Big quotes around the word righted there. John Lair established himself as this male authority at the barn dance through his management of Linda Parker and others, through his self-proclaimed expertise of traditional songs, and through the scripts that he wrote for the barn dance. His scripts are written in a kind of vernacular that I'm not going to attempt. I don't know what he sounded like when he read them, but on the page, very few words end in G, and there are a lot of phonetic spellings of words that dictate a particular pronunciation. Men, for example, is sometimes spelled M-I-N, and special is spelled S-P-E-S-H-I-L. I'm not accent-shaming here in any way, I'm just pointing out that Lara made a heavy-handed choice in how the barn dance would sound to an audience, so much so that he devised his own linguistic code which he wrote into the scripts. Lara’s scripts were also explicit in the questioning of the morality of changing times. He shared his dislike for movie theaters, for example, and was direct in what he thought as the moral advantage that small towns and rural living had over cities. Here's a bit he worked up about Christmas: Quote, the people living in small towns and in the country get the most out of Christmas. They spell it Christmas, not Xmas. They ain't took Christ out of their Christmas. How did Gene Munich get the name Linda Parker? It seems to be a last minute call on the part of Lair. The script from Gene Munich's first show has several names written in Lair's handwriting in it, including Piney Linville, Dulcie Lewis, Linda Marshall, and Linda plus about 15 other last names. We don't really know why he settled on Linda Parker, but Piney Linville might be a missed opportunity. While in the middle of a tour with the Ridge Runners through the Midwest during a performance in Elkhart, Indiana, Jean Munich becomes ill. She finishes the show, but two days later she's rushed to a hospital in Mishawaka. She has emergency surgery for a perforated appendix and receives two blood transfusions. She does not survive, passing away at noon on August 12, 1935, at the age of 23. It's a tragic death of someone still rising in popularity, artistry, and influence, but the story doesn't end here. In some ways, things are just beginning. What does a radio station do when a beloved star with a completely fictional background dies? Remember, Barn Dance Radio, its monthly fan magazine, and its yearly family album are the only national mechanism for sharing this information. And so far, these media have only presented Linda Parker to the world, not Gene Munich. Here's what they do. They announce Linda Parker's death and funeral on the radio. I don't know what they said over the radio, but listeners were shocked. The next issue of Standby was already produced and on its way to listeners when the news broke. Here's what one listener wrote. We heard over the radio the announcement of the funeral of Linda Parker. With today's issue of Standby, I lost no time in searching for details, and possibly a picture, of this beloved person and the sweetest singer on the barn dance. Finding absolutely nothing after searching from cover to cover, I put Standby away, and this is one magazine that will never positively be read by me. Disappointed subscriber, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The station explained the lag in production of the magazine and the news of Linda Parker's death, including more details in the August 31, 1935 issue of the magazine. Here's the obituary they wrote up in that issue. Linda Parker, the little sunbonnet girl, was born Jean Munich in Covington, Kentucky in 1912, the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Edward Munich. Her family had lived in Kentucky for several generations, one branch having migrated there from Pennsylvania. When she was quite young, Linda's family moved to Hammond, Indiana, where she grew up and went to school. Her first radio work was at WWAE Hammond, then followed appearances at WAAF Chicago. It was there that John Lair, manager of the Cumberland Ridge Runners, heard Linda's songs. He immediately liked her sweet voice and manner of singing, and it was not long before Jean Munich had become Linda Parker, the little sunbonnet girl with the Cumberland Ridge Runners. Linda's personality and voice endeared her to listeners from the very start. She rose to national prominence, singing on the National Barn Dance, Mountain Memories, Coon Creek Social, and many other programs. Listeners loved her singing so well that many a song practically became hers in their mind. Such numbers as I'll Be All Smiles Tonight, Wait for the Wagon, Mother's Old Sunbonnet, and Dozens' Others. One of her own favorites was the old ballad Bury Me Beneath the Willows. She played banjo, piano, the old-fashioned dulcimer. She was also a talented singer. With Linda and Art Janes, the baritone of the Maple City Four, it was that rare thing known as love at first sight. She came to the station early in 1932 and she and art were married that june in valparaiso indiana linda supplemented her air radio programs with theater appearances throughout the middle west with the ridge runners it was while the group was playing in an elkhart indiana theater that linda became ill she bravely continued with the performance however and it was not until two days later that she went to st joseph's hospital in mishawaka she died there August 12th after an appendicitis operation had failed. Memorial services were conducted over WLS by Jack Holden, and a large group of Linda's and Art's friends attended funeral services at LaPorte, Indiana on August 14th. Pallbearers were the boys from the Ridge Runners Red Foley, Hartford Slim, Slim Miller, and Carl Davis, and Pat Pedersen and Fritz Meissner of the Maple City Four. As Linda was laid to rest, there were few among her friends who failed to remember her favorite song, Bury Me Beneath the Willows, for Linda sleeps beneath the largest weeping willow in the cemetery. To me, this is a fascinating and honestly upsetting mix of myth and facts that attempts to acknowledge Gene Munich, the person who died, while still trying to preserve the facade of the purity of the barn dance way of life that stems from traditionalism. Note, they do give her a real name, but maintain that she is from Kentucky, not Indiana. They lean into the myth of her multi generational roots in Kentucky, lending authenticity to the style of music she sang on the radio, as if it were only natural that she sings songs from her heart and homeland, rather than a style she didn't adopt until later into her career. No mention of her blues background. On top of that, the myth of Jean being buried beneath a willow is a complete fabrication, again, all in an attempt to preserve the myth. What's more egregious to me are the ways in which, after this announcement, the myth surrounding Jean Munich's WLS origins mutates from John Lair hearing her on the radio to John Lair discovering her in a nightclub, or hearing her as she came to the WLS stations to promote her nightclub act. The nightclub discovery tale somehow has been repeated as truth in most, and admittedly there are very few, bios of Linda Parker. I acknowledge that Standby and John Lair are equally notorious for myth-making, so it may not even be true that John Lair heard her on the radio, but I don't believe John Lair discovered Jean Munich in a nightclub. Maybe he was at the Beth L. Solarium that was transformed to look like a nightclub for that one gig that Gene played in the winter of 1930. Maybe this is his stretching of the truth. So, what's the big deal about Gene Munich being discovered in a nightclub? I only bristle at it because it caters to the narrative that John Lair saved Gene Munich from an immoral existence and reformed her through traditional music and values, much in the same way a return to the wholesomeness of a traditional way of life could reform an urbanizing, secularizing America. I believe this narrative is diminishing of Gene Munich's personhood and plays into a harmful mix of gender and traditionalism found in much of John Lair's work at the Barn Dance and beyond. Not to mention, to position yourself as a savior of a woman, fictionally or not, is misguided egoism at best. Alright, moving on. In season one, we heard about the songs Elsie McWilliams wrote and Ernest Tubb recorded memorializing Jimmy Rogers.
2: Our beloved
1: America's blue yodeler
0: Jimmy Rogers, you all knew by name Went to New York, some new songs to record But his frail health could not stand
1: Linda Parker, Jean Munich, becomes the first female country singer to have a song written about her passing. Carl and Hardy of the Cumberland Ridge Runners write and record this song, We Buried Her Beneath the Willow.
0: We buried her beneath the willow with heads bowed.
1: details of her actual funeral are that she was buried in Pine Lake Cemetery in Laporte, Indiana, and the funeral was the biggest the town had ever seen, with over 3,000 people in attendance. The funeral records have her listed under her married name, Jean E. Janes, but the gravestone says Linda Parker, wife of Arthur Janes. I'm not suggesting anything untoward in this, Thousands of performers changed their names, Bob Dylan, David Bowie, Jennifer Aniston. We don't know what Bowie was buried under, he has a secret gravesite, but it isn't so odd for a performer to be buried under his or her stage name. I don't know Jean Munich's wishes in this regard. Her mother even seems to have referred to her as Linda Parker in letters to John Lair, so it may be that the Linda Parker name became more than just a stage name. Again, I have no issue with this and no real way of knowing. Jean's death made Linda Parker more popular, more sympathetic and sentimentalized. The sentimental mother, tragically, bravely suffering and dying, played into the image that she and John Lair had cultivated. Lair used her death to promote a program called Bunkhouse and Cabin Songs, which would play, quote, the good old time songs of long ago from hill and plain from cabin and bunkhouse, the songs your daddies and mammies grew up with, unquote. The program was sponsored by Lair, more specifically a songbook that he had compiled and was selling. He says, quote, It's a dandy, and then there's a nice big picture of little Linda Parker, to whose memory the book is dedicated, unquote. There was a program that memorialized Jean Munich on her birthday in January 1936. The girls of the Golden West sang I'll Be All Smiles Tonight. Patsy Montana sang Take Me Back to Renfro Valley. On the program, John Lair asked listeners to quote, Remember our little sunbonnet girl, when she was young and eager for life, instead of thinking her racked with the pain and torture of those last despairing days before she left us. Lair, on the air, gave out her mother's address so listeners could send cards. Her mother received hundreds of letters, cards, and poems from mourning fans. Lulu Bell and Scotty Wiseman, the sweethearts of country music, named their first daughter Linda Lou, at first reportedly in tribute to Linda Parker. Later, they said it's both in tribute to Linda Parker and after Scotty's sister, Linda. Standby printed the lyrics to a number of Linda Parker's songs in a later issue, perpetuating the backstory that these songs came from her grandparents and mother. In this, her grandfather is described as a typical Kentucky mountaineer. But they also add the detail that Linda was an avid song collector herself, with John Lair writing, Linda Parker, whose tragic death on August 12, 1935, stilled what many of us believe to be radio's sweetest voice, must have sensed that Linda loved the songs she sang. One of her greatest pleasures came from collecting them, as her manager was my job to furnish her with all the songs she needed for her programs, but many of her best songs she found and brought in. The mentions of Linda Parker and WLS publications eventually dwindled over time, and her name, all of them, are all but forgotten. But her impact remains. Here's how scholar Christine McCusker describes Jean Munich's impact. This admittedly obscure singer had an impact far beyond what her short tragic life might suggest. She was the first solo southern female image that combined vaudeville ideas about Appalachia and radio technology. Munich and her manager John Lair determined what costuming a mountain woman would use on stage and what her musical sound would be and what stage plays would give the character shape and form. In short, they took various elements from live theater and transformed them for audio use on the radio. They succeeded in making a character with little substance in the material world, but who seemed to be stable and traditional in the national barn dances fictive one that became a powerful archetype that could be reinvented over time. This whole episode is missing one important thing. The actual words of Jean Munich. This is because they are almost no recorded interviews with her. All that we have are what newspapers WLS publications, fans, scholars and historians say about her. The only quote I could find from Jean Munich herself comes from a random interaction with a roving on the street reporter for a Chicago newspaper, who happened to meet Jean near the WLS offices one day. The question put to her was, Have you ever been forced through danger to do something that you thought you were not capable of doing? Linda told the reporter, I was out canoeing one day when a sudden gust of wind capsized the canoe. I did not know how to swim and was far too out for those on shore to hear my shouts for help. For a moment I thought I was lost, but when I came to the top I began to swim for the first time in my life. Thanks for listening to Wildwood Flower. References and songs from this episode are in the show description. Musicians, if you'd like to submit a cover of one of the featured artists from Wildwood Flower, please get in touch with me. These could be from season one or season two. If you're interested and you want a little bit more direction about what to do, just get in touch with me and we can talk it through. Again, you don't need to be an ultra professional to do this. I'm hoping this can just be a way for you to express your creativity. Maybe even try something new. We're going chronologically here, and we're building to some real superstars. Next week, we'll get our first taste of that when we cover Lulu Bell. See you then.
0: I'll be your smiles tonight, love. I'll be your smiles tonight. Though my heart may break to I'll be your smile.